I'm Dr. Ward Bond, and I welcome you to Life-Changing Wellness, episode number 42. Today, it's all about inspiration, the rise and fall and redemption, the true story of Tex-Mex balladeer Freddie Fender. So stay tuned for this very special Life-Changing episode. This is Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness. Life-Changing Wellness. Here's Dr. Ward Bond. Well, welcome everyone to the show. This is a very special episode of Life-Changing Wellness. And before we begin, if you could just do me a favor, please head over to iTunes after the interview and my and with my guest today, rate and review the show for me. And I encourage you to look up my show page on RadioMD.com slash Dr. Bond. So I thank you for that because we want to give you the best show possible. Well, my guest today is Tammy Lorraine Herta Fender, a true native Tex-Mex princess. Her book, Wasted Days and Wasted Nights, A Meteoric Rise to Stardom, tells the true life story of her famous father, the late Freddie Fender, the king of Tex-Mex, as only seen through the eyes of Freddie's daughter. Her book expresses in intimate detail his rise to success, heartbreaking fall, and final redemption bringing to life the heartfelt memories of a man and family caught in the whirlwind of great fame and conveys in a passionate, compassionate yet fortright manner the shattering addictions that accompanied his fame. Wasted Days and Wasted Nights takes the reader on a journey which covers Freddie's early life of brutal poverty as a child of migrant worker, his years as a U.S. Marine, the shocking arrest and imprisonment of his early 20s, and his barrier-breaking singing career as he exploded into and crossed over different music genres and the alcohol and drug addiction from which he suffered. And during his last 21 years of sobriety, Freddie sought spiritual redemption, practiced forgiveness and made amends in his daily life. He came to lead by example with the aid of his Savior, Jesus Christ, and Freddie Fender was known to millions of people across the world as an ordinary man who had extraordinary God-given talents. And in the mid-1970s, Freddie would become famous literally overnight as a rock and country megastar with his first two monster hits, before the next teardrop falls and wasted days and wasted nights. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our very special guest today, his daughter, Tammy Lorraine Herta Fender. Welcome to the show, Tammy. Thank you for having me, Dr. Bond. I appreciate that. Well, you're very, very welcome. I want to kind of get started here because um, I understand that your father's last wish was that he wanted an authentic, uncompromising book to be written about his life. And I will say, Tammy, you did just that. This book is one of the most detailed autobiography biographies I've ever read, and I'm still not through it all. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, well, um, my mother had given me um, about 100 cassettes, and sometimes we'd sit at the park and we'd just listen to them, you know. But uh, I ended up taking the box of cassettes home with me, and... Uh, I just, you know, I had begun writing, and, and but I was doing my research for about two and a half years, sleeping in my car, uh, sleeping in strangers' houses to get their interviews, and they would tell me of, of Freddie when he was a child, and, uh, and a child migrant worker at the age of eight and ten years old, and I'd go to nursing homes as well, and so I can find the elder people, you know, to give me these stories, you know, and, um, but what was just, uh, 
you know, at the very end, uh, you know, when I just, when I got to those last few cassettes, you know, uh, I had been, you know, just working and researching and everything that uh, it, it was so overwhelming that I couldn't sleep. You know, all these flashbacks kept coming to me, you know, and I just would, would run and just drop down the memories, you know, so I can just get them out of my head. But at the at the very end there, I decided to reach over those uh, last few cassettes and because uh, um, every night I would like... Um, I would go through these, uh, like almost like these sweats because uh, there were so many stories of the of the light, the darkness, everything that was going through, through our past, you know. And I said, well, should I tell these people what really happened to us, what really happened to Freddie in the backdrop? Because they only know him, you know, of all this, you know, how wonderful he is and, and the hype and everything and how he achieved the great American dream through his struggles and the poverty and the hardship of losing his father at eight years old to uh, tuberculosis and being a child migrant worker. But there was so much more, much more to Freddie, you know? And, uh, and, and, and it is true that, you know, it was, uh, that he had, uh, you know, he was just, uh, a, um, you know, just a, an ordinary man with, uh, extraordinary God-given talent, you know? And it was just towards the, when I just started to listen to those last cassettes that I heard him say, you know, because I just kept changing the story, you know, like, I gotta take that off, there's no way I could tell people about what just happened and that <laughs> well, happened, you know, because they're gonna think I'm annihilating him, but eventually, uh, I heard him say that he did want what was significant in his life, he wanted the dark side to be told about his arrest and the divorces with, because he divorced my mom a couple of times, the separations after 49 years of being together and going to prison and things like that, he wanted the real story. He would hope that people would honor him that way, not just to hear that he was just a lucky poor boy and he made it out of the barrio and made it big, you know. And uh, so that gave me some relief that I was right on target, and that's what he wanted, and that I and that I wanted that too. And so then I just that was my the go ahead to proceed, and that's when it happened that you know that. Uh, you know, the, just uh, the closure for me to keep on going. And I well, had to do that book too. Yeah. And I, what I, excuse me, what I loved about the, about your book was that it, you not only told his story, but I loved the fact that you had a lot of personal quotes from your father. So it was like, you're telling the story, but then it's kind of, it also your father would chime in and really give his true take on every segment and season of his life. And it really brings the whole story to life between what you saw through your eyes. And then definitely it's almost like you could hear his voice telling you the rest of the story. And that's why I think it's one of the most uh, amazing autobiographies, biographies, I have truly read, and you did a fantastic job. But I want to kind of start off here uh, in the beginning with with your father. And as you had stated, he was a child migrant worker. You know, you know, at the age of eight and the age of ten, he traveled all over the country. He was picking beets, pickles, belled hay, pick cotton. How did that type of story uh, impact you growing up? Um. Well. Even when, uh, even when my dad was in his thirties and forties, 
uh, he was still picking uh, uh, being a migrant worker because that's most of our relatives. That's what they do down south in, in, in the in the bars in the in, in that area down in, in San Benito in, in Rio Grande Valley. Uh, so that's all you know because you don't have education, so you can't finish the education because. That's how. That's the kind of family you're you're into. You're not into doctors, and you know they have those advantages. So you just, you, you know, so the elders make the children become migrant workers. So that's all he knew. And he was big ditches, and and uh, and I remember like pulling his his. You know, we were like trained. He'd come back home at at, at the end of a, a long day, and his and his fingers would be full of uh, you know, the oil and the with the grease from the car being a mechanic so he would turn me around and he would and I he would put his foot underneath uh between my legs with his with his boots or shoes and and I would pull him off for him because he was so exhausted well then in the at night on and then in the weekend he'd go play on his the cantinas you know and and make a little extra money because you know so that we could eat you know and so he would uh he would also support his mother and and his siblings still you know um so, so being a, a child, we were still, you know, in poverty, not as much as Freddie was when he was a kid, but how I knew what we were going to pretty much eat for like the next few weeks or the next season, pretty much, we would stand outside and we would look at the other kids or the other family because the elders would be going, they'd be left, you know, the older brothers or something, the sisters and the aunt. But, and so there were trucks would come in, the troqueros would bring each family and and drop them in front of the house and stuff like that. So we would know from one block to the other, hey, well, I wonder what we're going to eat now. What's coming in in the truck? You know, we're going to bring a few things for it. So we would know if it was tomatoes, uh, you know, watermelon, melon, cucumbers, uh, pecans, or whatever it was. But, you know, I, I and because the other kids would be eating it, so I said, oh, that's what we're going to be eating, you know, because they've already dropped that family off on that block. We're still waiting for our truck. To, to drop off our family, you know, our relatives over here in this block. But I always would look forward to the Sugar Kings. That's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, let's talk music for a moment, because I know that he recorded Wasted Days and Wasted Nights back in 1959, which kind of surprised me because I didn't think the song was that old. But then he did a remake of his song in 1975. And then in 1974, he recorded Before the Next Teardrop Falls. What did you think of his superstardom? Well, um, what, well, I can tell you what I can, what I thought, and I can tell you what he thought because it was more probably baffling for him. But <laughs> uh, me, to me, uh, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't understand it. Uh, I didn't know what was happening. Uh, at the same time, I kind of didn't care because I didn't know. I was still kind of like in my early teens. And, and my father was always an absentee father. He would, he would come in our lives and then my parents would squabble because he was always out in the cantinas all night. So, you know, and I, you know, with entertainers, my dad was a womanizer too. But, you know, the thing is, my mom's so conservative, old school, and she wasn't used to that, uh, being with an entertainer. She was so shy. So there was, you know, so he was always in the doghouse and so he'd sleep a lot of times at the, at the, at the clubs, at, at the bars, you know, in the back cot. So, so a lot of times, you know, I didn't know, you know, being close to father or not. It was, you know, and at the time, at that time, before he, he was the stardom, I wasn't 
like so close to him, like I said, because he was coming and going still all the time. And even afterward, because then we didn't even see him at all because he was all over the world, you know. But, uh, but to, so, but to him, I'd like to share, um, he didn't realize, he didn't snap too much to about the, the teardrops when that was a massive hit and getting all these awards and everything for the uh, most promising, uh, singer of the year and so forth. And even though that he made, probably so the most uh, distribution of, of those that song all over the world and across the charts of rock and country and and pop and all that he still didn't get the grammy i think they uh they gave it to captain and Tennille, uh for <laughs> i think it was uh love will was it uh love will keep us together i mean a great melody you know but you know but i'm um, being hispanic he did you know also um, and they were well deserved of course uh but freddie did you know even with the country music at the time and at the seventies, you know, there's still uh, social prejudice and something. Sure, and Freddie sure. was just like boom, boom, crossing over, and they didn't know, they didn't understand what was going on with with this Mexican Hispanic guy. You know, they thought he's from Mexico. He's so dark, but he's he's from here. But uh, but they didn't know why he was just like every song was just hitting all over the crossing every Billboard chart. And but then what, because I caught my father, he kept going into my room and playing my record player because I'm a, I'm a dancer. I was collecting, I always collect music, you know, my brothers play all kinds of music and I play the drums. So I, I would catch him using my record player and I was like, I didn't really like that, you know, because I'm like, <laughs> my but he would sit there and he would sit there, but he was going over wasted days and wasted nights hearing it. And I don't know, why would he be hearing wasted days on a 45 single? I, it, it didn't ever occur to me till later, you know, when I was doing my research for the book, when I and I and I found a, a picture of him listening to it there, and I, and I and it just I caught it, you know, like I see, I mean, I'm into his mind, you know, I'm into his mind now with all his research, and it's like I'll sew the quilt and put all the pieces together because in in the 1959, a that's when. Um, he tried to push Mean Woman, which he wrote about my mom, and then Holy Wine, uh, and then th- that's the first song he wrote, and then Wasted Days and Wasted Nights, which I'm not, I don't want to tell the audience where he wrote it, but my father wrote it for my mom, you know, but uh, they can read it in the book. It's just an amazing story. But uh, <laughs> Keep but the mystery going. <laughs> yeah. So, so what happened is that when he was in Baton Rouge, of course, then what happens, he gets caught in some some kind of whirlwind something happens that that some that, that the governor the lieutenant governor's in and and some kind of thing that they don't like mexicans they thought freddie was an anglo so they didn't like him and they did take pull him off the stage and arrested him and so forth and 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 so he here i found these pr- pictures of him in prison all bumped out they had arrested him and they for five years and uh in an angola prison there and then they to see horses around you and make you go back to here, he thought he was going to be a, a star, you know. And I found some charts that he was on the charts with Elvis Presley, Paul Anka, Frankie Avalon, Frankie Valley, uh, um, uh, King Cole, and he can't push wasted days and wasted nights because he's he's stuck there and he can hear his music on the radio. But and then so like you know, here he is about to with Imperial Records. He's about to become a, a star at 23 and to be totally at a halt, uh, everything at a halt, you know. Uh, and so, um, and so, and here he is having to like go back to the fields. They're making him pick sugar cane 
and 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 chop those weeds and everything. So and and horses and and, the, and police their security with with shotguns if they run away. You know what you can't because you're by the water there. You know, but well, and, well, let me uh, Tammy, let me ask you this because um, I, with the story of your father, if, if I if I know the story correctly, Freddie and a band member were arrested of possession of marijuana in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They served nearly three to five years in Angola, uh, which, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know about Angola, look it up. It's probably one of the most famous prisons in the United States. Uh, But I understand that Freddie was released through the intervention of the then governor, Jimmy Davis, who we all know is also who was also a songwriter and a musician. And um, and it was through Jimmy Governor Jimmy Davis in which Freddie got out of prison early, correct? Right. Uh, and uh, he's the one, I th- also I think, Rowan sang, uh, You Are My Sunshine. Well, yeah, you know, I know so- J- yeah, I know Jimmy Davis because he actually sent my wife and I a book as a wedding gift. So uh, we know we know Jimmy Davis very well. Of course, he's, he's passed on. I think he lived to be 100. And uh, But, uh, you know, Governor Davis was definitely a godly man. So uh, I found the story that uh, when he stepped in to intervene on Freddie's behalf, I just thought it was beautiful. Yes. Well, um, well, he, when I see that movie, Art Thou, it reminds me of that's a, a lot what's going on uh, with, the, with the governor, you know, and he likes musicians, you know, because also uh, he, he liked Led Belly. Led Belly was there also, and he's a jockey musician, and he kept getting into trouble. He lived over, he, he was over here in the Sugarland in uh, Texas, and he kept getting in trouble, you know, with drinking and so forth, you know. But that's what the governor and, and the politicians would do. They'd go into the prison there, and they'd look to see if, like, hey, they like you. Hey, they, you might be qualified to get you out in, in uh, you know, early parole. But because Louisiana, you know, is French, you know, you have that law, you know, you're you're guilty uh, before you're found innocent, you know, the Napoleon yeah. Code, you know, that's the way they were. So, um, so Freddie, they, they, they stopped it to him and just, just stopped everything. So the, the title of the song, Wasted Days and Wasted Night, is perfect because, because after Freddie, they, after like 20 years goes by, and, uh, then, then it's these big, huge agents, the, the, the biggest agents in the world built, uh, Jim Halsey, you know, uh, they find, they, they hear about Freddie. They tell me, hey, Jim, we got this guy over here. I mean, you've got to put him in Vegas on a night show because he's the one that brings all the big stars to, to, to Vegas, you know, and and, uh, and the biggest table that he has there, you know. Uh, but he said, well, hey, we, I don't know this guy. Well, they t- said, well, you know, they but they really talked him into doing. So when they met Freddie, you know, they, they didn't know him, and they put him in big, and it was a marquee with big lights, and Freddie just went in there. They had, I don't want to tell them how they found him. They had found him at the bus station or something, how he was dressed, and they couldn't believe it, and they told him, you better go get him some clothes and bring him on here so we can uh, we can meet him, you know? And then that night, he just knocked the whole, he just walked that house, and it was a standing ovation, and they had, like, the I think the Daily News there in Las Vegas, and some of those articles, and uh, it was just amazing, and that was it. And that's why I named the subtitle A Meteoric Rise to Stardom, because that's what happens to them later. Bam! So what they did is then the producer went and back and got all those piggybacks, all the songs that Freddie had been recording, that raw music, because Freddie was, was really 
rhythm and blues, funk, and lead guitarist, you know. But only he got famous because the rock and country, well, country, because he was, he was a Spanish rocker, the bebop kid, and was the first one to ever do Spanish rock, uh, you know, so he's established there. So, and I, and I put on ledgers and everything. Well, did, well, did, did Freddie write songs and, and, uh, did he write songs while he was in prison for that short time? Oh, yes, he did. A lot of those songs that he, he composed, and I'd like to do a, a music collection because they're raw and they're tear jerkers. I mean, the best. I mean, Freddie would even, I put a quote on there. I think it was maybe the second, uh, the second book I, that I have the sequels already written. Uh, which is the fall and the redemption, um, is uh, he tells you, you know, hey, you know, uh, you know, I'm even more of a balanced balladier than even Elvis was, you know, because he has a lot in common with Elvis, you know, and as you keep reading through the first and second. Oh, book, absolutely. Uh, and, yes, and uh, and and because uh, they were about to meet, you know, they were about to meet right before Elvis Presley passed away. That's so within those few weeks, and I and I was there to hear it when I heard it on the radio that he, he had died and my mom gotten she had gotten off the limo because the only way we could see my dad was for us to be in Los Angeles a lot because my dad and was always like in Hollywood and Burbank studios with Johnny uh, Carson and Donna Shore show, all those shows that, you know, so we, in order to see my dad, we had to go see him sometimes. And there, and that's when we had heard, I had heard in the radio, I was with the limo driver. My mom had gotten out of the limo to get my dad's rhinestone. Do you remember the beautiful rhinestone suit that he used to wear? Oh, and yeah. Like, I remember that. Not like today. They don't really wear much for a nice, you know, suit. But, today, but back then, I mean, oh, my gosh, the glamour was something else. So, you know, but I just remember, you know, that the entourage, they were, they were trying to put them together within the next few weeks. But Freddie was just so all day TV book with all day. And then at night it was concert. They really, they just, just well, that was Freddie. Well, as the daughter, when did you finally figure out that your dad was a superstar? Um, I, well, it's pretty much, I, uh, and I'll tell it, it's pretty much at the end of the book, at the first book here, that the, the Waste days and wasted nights, the ride. Uh, but I just, uh, you know, I just wanted to know. I mean, it, it got to the point that basically my dad was, he was owned pretty much from the music industry. When you have a contract, they own you, you know, when, when oh, they yeah. want you to extra show, even though it's not in the contract, hey, you better do another show or you're never going to be invited here. You know, they have you, you know, and they know that people, you're going to bring in money, you know, and, and Freddie was on top, you know, and uh, high, high demand, probably uh, the most high demand of, of any artist, you know, ever, you know, to just TV all day and then night. So, uh, and and it doesn't come in from me. It comes from his credible uh, agencies, to tell you this, uh, agents and producers. And um, anyhow, so, yes, and I just, and eventually I just was, you know, it's like, Again, we didn't have a dad, so he was always gone now, but this time he was a star. And I said, well, you know what? I want to find out what the heck, what's going on here. And that's when I went to go see him at, a, at the show because uh, they kept making him do an extra show, you know, late at night, you know, and people were screaming. And then there were like people like, if you don't sign my autograph, you know, I'm not going to come see you again. I would hear women say that. And then I would see a woman like raise her blouse sign my <laughs> and I'm like the Catholic girl like 
I'm like, God, what's going on? I'm like, you know, like, I'm not used to all this, you know, there's a real culture shock for us, you know? And, 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 uh, so it was, things were going just so fast and, and, uh, and the, um, and his entourage and the bodyguard, you know, following me to the bathroom. I just, you know, it was just crazy. And, uh, it's just different times, you know, and, but that's when I went to go see what it, the bus was about. And I started to describe at the very end what I saw. And it was just, I was just starstruck. Wow. That's, that's amazing because uh, I, I want to uh, kind of, I want to move over to, I know that when he got out of prison, that, it didn't really deter him from alcohol and, and drug addiction. But in 1988, he was forced into rehab, but he didn't really like that at the beginning. So so what happened during that time? Well, um, that's when the fall comes in. I, I stopped at the very peak of his success, the, the highest peak we had, uh, for this first um, part of the rise. And, and it continued on to the fall as well. Something starts happening to Freddie in the fall, and, and there's only four chapters because I didn't want to overwhelm people because people can only chew and, and take so much. Nobody wants to hear anything bad about the person they love or Elvis Presley or anybody, you know. And it wasn't for me to tear my father down, but I knew that you know I wanted to be uh, forthright as I am taught to be humble, and we are always to us in my mind and my eyes from the barrio from and Harleen, you know, we're peasants, you know, and we're not going to pretend ever to be something else. You always have to remember where you're from, you know, and never forget that, you know, and be grateful. And, uh, but um, it, it was, uh, it, and my mom gives me the interviews and I don't want to give away her interviews, but it, it was her, it was because of her that she finally shy, reserved, uh, that she was the one that, after taking all of that, because she tells you, hey, Brady gave me 25 bad years, and, and he gave me 25 years, good years. And so, and so, uh, so there's a balance there, right? And so, yeah. I got interviewed, because my mom will not talk to anyone. She's very uh, reserved, and she's just shy. And there's no way, because it hurts too much to talk about Brady, because she misses him. She knew him as 14, 15 years old. You know, and so, uh, and they married young. And so she, and so it was um, a year later after father passed that, she, that we were going through in her, in her Lincoln and driving around down in San Benito. This is your father and I used to do this. And we would dance in front of this drugstore to his first song. And don't be cool. And we would dance here in front of this root beer drugstore and we would dance together on the street. And the, and the album was color purple. It was a big, you know, album. And, um, but she's the one that finally, just let it all come out, all the pain, and and t- and told me uh, what what had happened, and 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 all the stuff that Freddie did, even the sixties, you know, because at that time he did pills and everything, and Freddie was putting them in his bass drum with his drummer, and, that, and that's how they would carry pills and stuff for the cartel, the drugs, the mafia down there, and go from one state to another because you know Freddie was the, the leader of the pack, but you know, but again, how do you tell people no? If no one tells you to do something, you're not going to say no. And so those, to me, this is exactly, and I don't mean to, you know, say nothing bad about Frank Sinatra or anything like that because he's wonderful, right? He's a wonderful singer, and he is what he is, and, and you know, we all know of him. But 
Freddie was a lot like Frank Sinatra. He was very connected, you know, and people, hey, they want to come see you sing. Well, that's exactly how Freddie was. But over here in the South Bell, you know, and uh, and exactly, you know, Freddie would get in trouble into Mexico in the year, and then they eventually got him in New Orleans, and then that's how I was raised in New Orleans, because he would break his parole, and that's why I, I tell a few stories about us being in New Orleans and uh, him playing in the French Quarter, and he would take me there, uh, and, he, and I could see him. He was playing there with Aaron Neville and B.B. King, and I just sit at the bar there during the afternoon drink cherry coke at like six years old, you know. <laughs> and um, but but uh, yeah. So uh, but anyway, so I I leave it for my my mom to say about the uh, how she was the one that forced him. It was her, and and it was because of her that he did get uh, treatment, and he got. Uh, Sober, and then Robert Redford picked him up right then and there, and he and he filmed the movie Milagro Beanfield will work for him, and it was really awesome. And uh, so well, he just well, continued, and he well, never went back. Well, and there's a story there with Minnie Pearl as well. They were very good friends, him and Minnie Pearl. Well, let me ask you this: well, well, <laughs> well, how did your father come to know Jesus Christ as Savior? Um, it was uh, it was through the treatment center. Uh, he was there for 90 days in Corpus Christi, um, and and uh, they talk about a higher power in the AA program, and his was, uh, well, he called him Jehovah, but, you know, Jesus as being the advocate of God, right? right. And, uh, and so, but um, I'm telling you, Freddie is, you know, because we were so angry with him because he did lose over thirty million dollars when he when he had gotten into heroin and shooting up and all that. It, it got so bad, you know. He like he was he was like a whipped horse, you know. Get to work. You, we got to you got to put in more songs. You got to do all these TV shows all day long, but and then you got to do all these concerts at night. But don't forget, you have to go back into the recording studio and you always these songs. So I mean, it just that was nonstop to work at the. Eventually, it wasn't fun anymore for, for Freddie. You know, it, they took that from him, you know. And so it was all about making all these other industries millions and millions of dollars. So Freddie lost that, and it's kind of maybe a little bit written, written in the book. But um, so, you know, we stayed, and we went, we went through that road with him. He took us up and down through that roller coaster, the good and the bad, you know. So... But we were left with nothing, pretty much. And so it was hard to forgive Freddie for many years, you know, even myself and my brothers, you know. But because Freddie had gotten so close to his higher power, Jesus Christ, you know, that you couldn't help to forgive him because he was so honest with you. He was so sincere in that twinkle in your eyes. And he just smiled so beautifully. I mean, even the man, he was so approachable. And he would make you laugh. He was really living it. He didn't preach. He nothing like that. He just lived it. And when he saw that you were hurting or sad, he snapped you out of it. I mean, everybody wanted to follow him. Even the men and the guy that they didn't want to follow. They didn't want to hang out with their girlfriends or their wives. They wanted to go hang out with Freddie, you know, and and uh, see, you know, and wherever he was going and the motorcycles. And he was just a cool dude to hang out with. And and he really cared about you, Freddie. You could have 20 people in the room, 50, but he always looked at you, knew you. Without you saying anything, what was ailing you, he already knew it. He knew wow. it. I don't know how Freddie had the sixth sense about him. And, and I talk about that in the second book. I don't want to get into it too much, but there's something about Freddie. I don't know how he just knew him that people, 
but he could just feel you. And without you telling him, he would tell you, hey, don't do it. Or he would say, you need to open your heart more. Or like, you know what, let it go. Because he just like, he already knew. And it's like nobody else in the room was knowing what was going on with you. But you only you knew. And I'm like, well, how does he know that? I haven't told him anything. But he knew. But I'm just saying, but he would make you feel like the most important person in the room. He just had that natural ability. And uh, it was his, and I think because just, uh, because of the, all the things he went through, and a lot of it was uh, that he didn't deserve, you know, uh, as a youth and, and, and all the, the, the prejudice, even from his own, the Mexicanos, because they didn't like Freddie. They, they didn't like him playing English music and Spanish rock and all that. Uh, they wanted him to play that Mexican stuff. And that wasn't Freddie. You know, and then the gringos, well, they, you know, gave him a hard time, too. But once they heard him sing, you know, they say, oh, that guy can sing, you know. So, yeah. So, the, the, pe- the, the Anglo-Saxons are the ones that really made Freddie. And Freddie does acknowledge that, you know. And he does say, hey, you know, when he got that star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, he goes, you know, thank you for putting, you know, my the steak next to my pinto beans. I love, I love Freddie's. Yeah, I love Freddie's music, and and what I want I want to ask you, you know, um, I'm seriously the book is fantastic, and and Tammy, can you share with us what is your greatest memory of your father? Um, well, oh gosh, there's there's so many, but uh, I was during his uh towards the end of his uh the. We all knew he was going to pass away, you know, I guess it could be six months, nine months, because he already had the kidney and the liver transplant, you know, and then, you know, because then you had the, because of the cancer stuff. So, because everything was coming back to you, even though he had stopped that 20 years, 21 years, he had died with, uh, he had passed away with 21 years of sobriety, and he used to smoke back then. But that stuff just never leaves your body, you know, right. you don't realize that. But, uh, and so he was all frail and everything, and, we were, he was taking me through the garage and through all these little, all the sports cars, you know. Freddie could, like, Freddie had this knack, if I have a few minutes, to, um. Sure. He had this ability to, to, he, he was an avid reader. He was, an, he was asked to go to several universities, I mean, uh, elite, you know, universities to where he would tell you about world history, you know, and, and, uh, military equipment. Well, Freddie could read, uh, he, he just sat there. He could he could look at he would just stare at the at this the tank a German tank or a plane a military plane of any of any country and he would just stare and we just look at that and study it and study it. Freddie knew every bolt and screw that went into that machine that he would tear it down with his eyes and he would rebuild it. But and, and but you know what? With Freddie, you always had a screw, a few screws that you didn't need to have to go back into the into the into the uh, machine, you know. But that was Freddie, you know. And but so when he took me to the garage to the to the cars, he kept pointing at this. Well, this does this. This little screw does this, and it's you know why it's connected to this and this and that. And I'm like going, why is he telling me all this? You know, you know. And I'm going, okay, well, give him the integrity, you know. Listen to him. Right and and uh, the dignity, you know, and so and it finally dawned on me, and I did, was trying not to choke up, you know, and uh, I think he was a way of him, like, and then he would tell me, "This is the key to to this car." He was trying to tell me goodbye, you know, but he didn't know how, you know, and so like, so then, uh, but then he was, then so he had given me an old pickup, a Dodge pickup, 
because I didn't really have a car and to come instead of flying that I could come and see him more often. So uh was there visiting? He goes, okay, well, I'm leaving now. And he goes, well, uh, do you need some tires? You know, I say, yes, I do. And I, I mean, Aaron, your tires? And he goes, yes. And so he goes, okay, when I know he was real fragile and he was bending down to put some air in the tires. And he goes, well, uh, you, well, how much do you want? I said, well, maybe just go, uh, you know, um, like uh, 35, you know. And, he, and then he goes, okay, 35. So he starts putting air and everything. I go, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, maybe uh, you should go, uh, um, like maybe forty-eight. You know, that we have enough air. You know, and so forth. And then, I, and then, so he says, okay, forty-eight. You know, and then, uh, so then I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, Dad. No, you can't do that uh, because I'm all, I'm always afraid that you know I'm going to have a blowout and, and it is hot out here. I'm just. You know, I think we better go and and do forty five. You know, just what the the factory said, forty five on tire. He goes, Tammy. You know, I said, make. I said, this is not bingo. You know, and when he said that, <laughs> it's so witty. You know, to me it was just like, oh my god. And 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 he wasn't laughing. He used to it, but to me it was when he said it. But he was just so natural. But um, it was that was just him. He was he was just so natural, and uh. It, you know, I think that's the most the beauty of him. He was just a natural. But I do want to tell your listeners that you know the, this first book it, it is all about Freddie and 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 it, Freddie's into Freddie and, and and how and how he struggles to uh, to to succeed and and the, the impoverishment and the hardships. And I'm not saying that he's the only one. There's so many people go through all that, you know. But if they read about him more in detail, how I tell you, how I tell you the story. You know, what's really exactly what's going on. And then I put his quote right to it so that you can see from both our eyes, you know, from his eyes and from mine, while we trudge that road to, to enjoyment, enlightenment, and happiness, you know, uh, as God wanted us to see it. Everything. To, and so this person's book is how he, you know, uh, how he achieves the great American dream, no matter what happens, you know. But the second book is what God did with Freddie. And that's what I wanted to tell you that's most important. And that's his messages that he, the meat and potatoes, my masterpiece, is what I want to tell humanity about the drugs and alcohol, that we don't bond like that with, with family, you know, and that, uh, that there is a way of hope, of hope, and that no matter what happened, where you've been, what you did, what happened, what's important is where you're headed. You know, the rest of your journey to your destination where, he, where God wants you. And if we're lucky, if we're lucky, that's where we go, you know, to uh, a place of peace. Because I'll tell you one last quote here, but this is the quote I put in the second book. And he tries to tell you because, I mean, I, I pretty much, you know, you're going to get mad, you're going to get sad, you're going to get angry in the second book with us and, you know, with, with him, what's going on. But... And I, I clearly take, I hurry up and take it to the redemption. I walk you through it. I hold your hand. Let's get through this fire together, you know, and I take you there. And then, then, then Freddie, and then all these people start saying, oh my God, Freddie's like, wow, I can't believe it. They tell you the before and the after, you know, and, and so do I. And the fact, but, but, but Freddie tells you, you know, he tells you, you know, that when, when he, um, when he, when he let the, the, the Lord, lead when he when he when he asked when he let God take over that's when 
everything fell into place. Everything gelled. It always does. That's the whole message. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy, I tell you what. You you wrote an amazing book about your father. And and ladies and gentlemen, for all of you listening uh, to this interview with Tammy Fender, the daughter of the late, great Tex-Mex balladeer, Freddie Fender, you've got to get this book. You've got to read it. It's literally, like Tammy said, you are reading through two sets of eyes, hers and Freddie Fender's, and you get the real life true story. You get the rise, you get the fall, you get the redemption. And it's a book that I want everyone out there to actually go by, read it, because it. I find it very inspiring. I found it very motivating because in the end, no matter what type of mistakes we have all made in our past, there's always hope. There's always redemption, and there's always a better way. And Tammy, uh, where can everyone buy your book right now? Um, well, they could go to um, either buy it online at Barnes and Noble or Amazon, or they could go to my publisher's uh, website, which is Tammy Huerta, T-A-M-M-Y-H-U-E-R-T-A dot com. But if they want to sign up by me. They're welcome to go to my website, the other website I have, which is Tammy, T-A-M-M-Y, Lorraine, my middle name, L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E, Huerta, H-U-E-R-T-A dot com. And I also have some t-shirts there that they might like, too. And there's a real cute one on Freddie, the uh, character in there, too. So uh, they can go there, and I'll sign a book and mail it to them. Oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, Tammy, thank you. I saw I saw some of the T-shirts on Instagram. So, ladies and gentlemen, they're very, very cool. So, if you're a big Freddie Fender fan oh. like I am, you got to get the T-shirt as well as the book. Again, Tammy, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been an honor. I want to thank you so much for giving us your time today to tell your father's story. Uh, you did a wonderful job. So, I want to thank you for that. Thank you, and I'd love to come back on your show when we get, when we get the, the the second book out. I already have the title for it, the subtitle, and it's already written, and I hope to get that out as soon as I can make enough noise to this book, and uh, <laughs> it'll be, I'll put that out in the next six months, if not sooner. Well, so you are. Come back you are, on your show, and thank well, you. Well, fantastic, because you are definitely welcome back, Tammy. I can't wait for the second book, so we could check that out as well. And ladies and gentlemen, remember to catch every episode of Life-Changing Wellness. Just hit subscribe on iTunes or on my show page at RadioMD.com slash Dr. Bond. And if I can ask you a favor, please take 30 seconds, rate the show on iTunes, and please leave a review as well. And if you could just do that for me, I would greatly appreciate it. You can learn more about me at DrWardBond.com. And again, check out my show page here at RadioMD.com slash Dr. Bond, which will lead you to all of our channels of iTunes, iHeartRadio, and others. So thank you for listening to Life Changing Wellness. I'm Dr. Ward Bond, and remember, something spectacular happens when you treat your body right.